0: Welcome back to Conversations with Animals. This is our last episode of the season and it's actually a bonus episode. Um, It is a special collaboration in honor of National Animal Rights Day, which is an international movement to celebrate, mourn, and grieve animal lives that are lost um, due to factory farming scientific research, and other sorts of processes that use animal bodies um, in unethical ways. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. We are talking to two students studying anthrozoology, and we're asking really important questions about the way we relate to animals and uh, the ethical framework that we can use to approach forming new relationships with them moving forward. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I'll see you this fall.
1: Um, So we met through the anthropology MA course at Exeter, um, which I came to because I did anthropology at undergraduate level, but it's always been non-human animals for me. I think that's where my passion's really been. I grew up in a vegetarian household, lots of companion animals, um, absolutely loved being around them. Um, I was very lucky to grow up like that. Um, And then I saw the anthropology course and thought it was just a perfect blending of the anthropology that I'd learned at university, which was incredibly interesting to me, um, but also mixing it with the non-human animal part as well, Um, but I worked in animal shelters for a few years um, as well alongside that um which is very rewarding a bit tricky at times but uh, yeah lovely to feel like you're helping them um which yes yeah, so it's all kind of culminated in doing the arteries M.A., gma and i'm looking forward to seeing uh what's going to happen afterwards
0: and
2: <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Um, My background is actually very similar to the other Natasha. Um, I've also grown up loving animals. I've always known that it is my passion and goal to work to make the world a better place for animals. And um, I originally wanted to be a vet, like a lot of other people who who love animals. Um, And Then I went on to study animal welfare and behavior science at Bristol University, but I realized that was a bit too much of a science focused um, approach for me, whereas I'm more arty and I like kind of more social science. Um, so then I also, I changed to anthropology, also with a specific interest in human non human animal relationships. And after graduating from that, I discovered anthrozoology. And for me as well, it was just the perfect thing that I, I wish I had discovered sooner. And yeah, um, it's kind of opened up a whole new understanding for me. And Yes, been incredible so that's kind of my my route to where I am now
0: wonderful yeah and I feel like um the link I see and a lot of from what I know of your work is is like this this emphasis on intervention and suffering and sort of this defining what suffering is which I feel like is such a fundamental question to like uh, when you're going out there to advocate for animals or to do your research I was just wondering if you could talk about like how you um, maybe first came to understand animal suffering and like what are you seeing in your research in terms of like alternatives for the way we, um, I know um, Natasha Tadley are like doing a lot of work with how we, uh, what we might do with ex-dairy cows and um, alternative imaginations for animals in our lives. So I know it's a big question, but
1: I'd love to hear your thoughts, yeah. (laughs) yeah absolutely so I think my first understanding wasn't really an academic one it's I think growing up in that environment with companion animals you do end up seeing some suffering very sadly I'm sure a lot of us have had that experience um and it's sort of a feeling of when you know them as individuals and sort of picking up when you think they're suffering um and again in animal shelters um you you do see a lot of quite sad and awful things and you see animals coming in in very bad states sometimes or animals who decline um while they're with you and especially fear I think in the animal shelters one of the things I actually struggled with quite a lot was animals are afraid of you and obviously we're not the kind of people who enjoy that um so that was always quite a tricky part of the job so I think that was um the ideas of animal suffering was quite a visceral thing for me really um but what the anthrozoology course has really given me is kind of the tools and the um, academic readings to understand why that is the case and why we feel that way. Um, and just looking at the difference, yeah, the different definitions of suffering, um, it, which is, is a really big question, as you say. Um, Obviously, the way that the government defines suffering and necessary suffering which is a phrase which you know is um very problematic in that necessary suffering but necessary to what necessary to economics necessary to you know people wanting to go and get a burger necessary to the animals themselves um so i think uh it can be quite easy to minimize suffering um culturally i think we minimize suffering quite a lot and as necessary suffering without actually really pausing to think what does the necessary part of that mean Um, because there may be in real life there may be some necessary suffering in terms of you know perhaps like injections and vaccinations and that sort of thing which is more i would consider necessary and that it's for the individual's own sake rather than um, just to make a bit of money and profit from them
0: And I know, Natasha, you also um, study uh, grief and like what's ungriefable. So I was wondering if you could bring this into conversation about um, how we think about suffering and and what life is worth uh, mourning, you know?
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, the anthrozoology course has also really shed light on what suffering is socially acceptable and what isn't and my research which has been looking at basically the way that we think about animals in death has shed a lot of light on yeah how we how we conceptualize that how we give value to non-human life um I think that death is a really important site at which human animal boundaries are maintained um the extent to which an animal life is grievable, or in other words, a social value attributed to it, um, often stands obviously in stark contrast to human lives. And my work looking at mourning, the power of of mourning and grief to to make individual lives visible as ethically significant and worthy of attention. Um, and yeah, so I think um, that's just a. A space in which i guess our our thinking about and the hierarchies that we create become very clear
0: yeah and it seems like there is that necessary conditioning right for those who don't want to engage in um you know valuing animalized for whatever reason you know if you don't grieve it then you don't have to accept that <laughs> it was suffering right or, yeah. or that it was a death um so I know you both are kind of walking this line between scholarship and then like on the ground activism so you've probably seen reactions to your work both from like the general public as well as scholars or fellow students so I was just wondering what is if you if there is a typical (laughs) reaction to when you share what you do or what you're passionate about uh, what is it
1: um i've definitely noticed a difference since moving to bristol um because bristol is uh, bristol uk it's very vegan friendly it's and it's one of the vegan capitals in the uk um and the reactions i get over here really are a lot more um interested i think and people willing to engage not people necessarily willing to agree um but people who will at least have a polite conversation um I often get a response, if I say I'm vegan here, it'll be like, oh, that's great, you know, I'm trying to cut down to, you know, only eat meat twice a week or something. Um, whereas when I used to live in places that weren't quite so vegan friendly, you'd, you'd sort of get a bit of a, oh, reaction, and that would maybe be the end of the conversation or something a bit dismissive or derisive. Um, so it's been really nice to feel in a slightly more encouraging environment here. Um, also does make me a little bit aware that I may be in a little bit of a bubble Um, and I do need to be careful not to think oh this is great everyone's going vegan when actually I am just surrounding myself with fellow vegans Um, but in terms of anthrozoology as well again I think there's lots of concepts that people do actually enjoy thinking about um, and starting a conversation with them it's nice that they're then also given a platform to work through ideas on their own terms and just opening the conversation up um, so I've I've had quite a good experience in general. I've been very lucky in that way.
2: Yeah, I've also really, I've had similar kind of reflections on definitely realizing that you are in a bubble and that a lot of the terms that were constantly, you know, coming across like speciesism and anthropocentrism just aren't known by the general public too. Um, and I guess for me in my work, I've, been looking a lot at issues of intersectionality. So looking at oppression as overlapping and interlocking. So that has involved, you know, making comparisons between the experiences of humans and animal and non-human animals. Um, and I think that can be greeted with disdain and negative reactions. So really being aware of boundary crossing and how It can be, obviously, transformative and productive to shift boundaries, but if you take it too far, it can have a counterproductive opposite reaction. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about how to communicate my research in a way that doesn't do that and looking at, for example, storytelling and like more visual creative methods and non-violence communication as all tools that I can use to cultivate care and compassion in a way that doesn't, you know, trigger that defensive reaction in people.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important what you're talking about. I know like how we first connected too was like wanting to think of ways to do storytelling around animal lives without while like, cultivating like a reverence for their lives rather than um, making uh, viewers or audiences like have that defense go up because it can be counterproductive but at the same time you know there's like so much harm happening mm. <laughs> that you want to make people aware of that it, it can be tricky right you're like what you're describing yeah. what you both were describing mm-hmm. that you know how do you be conscious of that but also not like work against your own goals um so have you, with your planning of um, NARD, and maybe we you could both speak a little bit more about it? Um, how are you strategizing that event and, and figuring out the approach you want to take and the impact of that approach?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to speak a bit. Um, we've we've ha- have brought in the storytelling into our our event. Um, we had a we're planning on. Obviously, we're memorializing all of the animals who have who have been killed at human hands. And we are using photos of animals at our event as opposed to the real bodies of animal victims. But to, I had the idea because I felt like the photos needed something more to help prompt people to care and really think about them as individuals. So we did a writing workshop actually for our participants with two writers, Julie Knopp and Gordon Mead. We're both animal advocates and Gordon Mead does poetry. Um, He's a Scottish poet based in Fife and Julie focuses on op-eds and she does, um, she's written for like New York Daily News and stuff. so they were. It was amazing to do that workshop and learning how to effectively tell an animal story and center their experience. So we're trying to bring that tactic into it. Um, definitely. Don't know. Natasha, you have any other
1: thoughts? <laughs> Um, no, I think that those are really good points, and it was a really, really interesting workshop. I feel like I definitely came away having learned something and being incredibly moved by some of the writing that was done. Um, so as Natasha says, I think writing can be a very powerful tool. You know, there's so much range in what you can write and how you can write it. It helps kind of get a spread across from, you know, just kind of very gentle awareness and um And all the way through to being very, very hard hitting um, and the more shock value side of campaigning and kind of writing and creativity has the entire spread. So it's very easy to like fine tune it to different audiences.
0: It's like a benefit, not just for like the writer of the story, right? Like they'll have that connection, but then obviously all of the readers or the fellow participants, like through that writing, getting to make like a web of connections, it, it sounds like. Um, and I know like you're also um, interested in thinking about um, farming environments. And I know that those obviously vary globally. So I'm not totally sure um, which environments you're most familiar with, but I'm just thinking in general about cultural associations with food and, and how Um, tricky that landscape can be to navigate in terms of wanting to be sensitive but also honest (laughs) like Mm -hmm. I'm thinking just the other day I lived right next to New York City's Chinatown and walking my dog and see like three like of the full slaughtered pigs carried out of a truck into a Chinese restaurant you know and I know there's a lot of cultural significance around eating pig especially like um, in that in that way so I just I'm like oh it's like horrible and then <laughs> there's also like navigating race and culture and um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you have anything to share around that in terms of thinking about farming and, and, how, and who has access to what kinds of foods and, Yeah,
2: yeah I feel like definitely there is so much dissociation and so much invisibilization of animals in the farming industry. Um, So I think it can, and obviously people don't want to think about the reality of where that food is coming from, and there's so much cultural significance around food as well. Um, So it is a very, it's a huge thing to try and tackle and address and talk about. Um, And I'd not, I found personally, um, something I struggle with is taking and I guess this also relates to what I said earlier about boundary crossing um, and leading people through something slowly and sensitively but whether to approach it with an abolitionist or a welfareist approach like do you ask people to go cold turkey or do you say every little bit is fine <laughs> with the knowledge of the scale of non-human suffering happening I think it's It's kind of, I know that in our course, we've, there's been a lot of discussion about animal welfare and whether it's productive, or if it just allows people to become more comfortable with buying animal products, if they believe it can be more humane. And, yeah, just always centering that abolition is the goal and the end point in activism. I think it's important but balancing that with (laughs) with you know take it day by day like don't beat yourself up if you mess up once but always centering that that goal of we need to we don't need better farming practices we need no farming (laughs) but yeah these are just thoughts that have been going through my mind in talking about farm animals yeah
1: yeah yeah I think yeah you've really um just summed it up really well there um and it's definitely the abolition versus welfare thing is something that I have struggled a bit with in my research so again being kind of an abolitionist the cow project that you mentioned earlier um looking at how it was about how can we find alternatives to slaughter for ex-dairy cows um which is sort of in between the two I suppose um and I think for me it came it came from a place of I think Although I would like to see the end of castle farming altogether, I personally think realistically we're not going to go from the frameworks that we have right now um, to abolition. I think realistically there are going to be approaches in between, and it is good to overshoot sometimes and you know argue for more because you know and you know it may end up being a compromise. But I was thinking if we could save um, you know dairy cows from slaughter at least, then that's a step in the right direction. Um, so I think for me I I think we do have to be careful with welfareism, as Natasha said, because people can then dismiss, you know, what we do to animals as okay and acceptable because at least they're all right. But um I think yeah i think it's just trying to get people to start thinking about these questions as well and just hopefully if you keep moving the goalposts and say okay so now this is the minimum standard of welfare then the minimum standard of welfare even though it's higher than it is now will still start to look like the lowest standard and we'll keep raising the standards and we'll keep raising the standards it's my hope anyway yeah
2: no that's a really good point and i think um there's a scholar called gary francioni i'm probably saying his name wrong but um he calls it i think new welfareism, and it's where the end goal is abolition but adopts a strategy of welfare or incremental reform so yeah it's kind of viewing it like natasha said you know incremental steps with that end goal which i think could be the way forward
1: mm-hmm. i think it's when you think about the individual animals as well i think Mm. it's very well and good to say you know we'd like them to be completely okay and completely free but for example um, I worked a bit with um, Ahimsa Dairy Foundation on this report and they were very very lovely very happy to be involved Um, and they are a slaughter-free dairy and they um, so they don't slaughter any of their cows male or female Um, and the calves are kept with their mums they naturally wean they're in social groups Uh, and I've been to visit them and is one of these things we just think um, is not abolition, but also if you're going to be farming cows, if people are going to insist on having dairy, I would rather that the cows were in this environment than in a factory farming environment, even if it's not necessarily where, you know, the end point is where well, we shouldn't take the milk at all. But at least these ones, they're not separated from their calves. The males aren't slaughtered. Um, they get to a point where they get, they have a retirement fund for the cows. Um, so after the cows get to a certain age, they just live out their life on the pasture with their other cows. So although they do still take animal products, um, at, at least you feel like the cows do have a life that's worth living. So I don't think that should be dismissed out of hand um, just because because it's welfarist rather than abolitionist.
0: Yeah, I think it's a hard line to walk and um, it was interesting when you brought up, Gary, I'm also realizing, I don't know if it's Francione or Franconi, but <laughs> I read, I remember reading some of his work and he brings up, you know, even, even um, eventually that it would mean like, no pet, no, no having pets, right? Like even pet ownership is unethical at a certain, degree like obviously right now but I was just making those parallels of like well we have all these animals in shelters so like you know the most ethical thing to do in that in-between space is to adopt them and give them homes Um, but it makes me uncomfortable because I'm like oh I love having pets and Mm -hmm. I don't I can't imagine not having them but I also see his ethical argument there Um, but I, I think it's a good point when we're talking about like okay if we are going to say like Overnight, right? We no more animals for products or food. Um, what would we do with all of them, right? Like, what if there's no profits being made from those industries who have an, um, a stake in housing them, right? Um, mm. so maybe it's worth considering, like you're saying, these in between spaces, even though it's very uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> to, to do so. I don't know. What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I think the usual, I think. Um, vegans often get that question asked of them and I think yeah the the usual response is that it is a gradual process things aren't going to change overnight um and I guess yeah it's always grappling with you know wanting to to focus on the su- animal suffering happening now today but also balancing that with a more long-termist um perspective and approach um that's looking at looking to the future and yeah so I think this has been something actually that in the NARD event the organizers have been talking about you know how do we how do we talk to people about becoming vegan as well and um yeah how far to push it I guess so it's a conversation that we've been having
0: so yeah I know we just have a couple of minutes left so I was wondering now's a great time I guess (laughs) how can people get in involved with The NART event, you know, I know that it's going to be ongoing too. So like, what are your goals for now? How can people plug in? And then like, what are you hoping for in the future for support and building it outwards?
2: So there are NARD events happening all over the world, so people can see if there's a National Animal Rights Day event happening near them, which they could attend and support. Um, for our event, yeah, we're hoping it can be an annual thing that we do every year Um and yeah just trying to produce some content for it putting stuff on social media so you can we have a facebook account and an instagram page which you can support um, to get the word out there about what we're doing yep
1: and the more people who come on the day um I mean, just the more impact the event will have. So if you're free on 4th of June in Bristol, UK or anywhere else, actually, for that matters, Natasha says, wherever you are, have a look, see if they're around and if you're able to turn up, please turn up, please spread the word. Um,
0: and it's so lovely having you both here and I can't wait to continue to follow your work and see what you do. Um, I know you're still deciding, you know, what's next after your program, your courses. So um, it'll be, wonderful to see like where you end up and how you keep finding new ways to share this work because I think we need people who are thinking about it in these ways and um, having these kinds of conversations so I'm excited for that
1: (laughs) oh thank you so much for having us yeah
2: thank you so much it's been great
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Animals. Again, this is going to be our second to last episode of the season. I hope you stay tuned this fall when I'm going to have some really exciting guests coming on. Um, For those of you in the New York City area, a reminder that tomorrow, Sunday, May 21st, is my reading as part of the Creature Conserve Exhibition on Governor's Island at Swale House, so I hope you come by.
2: (whistles) What?
1: What? What?